Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. In this week's episode, we cross the channel back to London, where Jack Blanchard, the author of Politico's London Playbook newsletter, interviews John McDonnell in a now infamous interview. John McDonnell is the shadow chancellor of the UK. He wants to be the treasurer of the country if the Labour Party can throw out the government of Theresa May. And in an interview that has caused a lot of backlash and debate in the UK, he describes Winston Churchill as a villain. Winston Churchill, hero or villain? Tony Pandy, villain. That's right, the national treasure of the UK is described by one of the leading figures of the Labour Party as a villain. Is Churchill really a villain? A bunch of people in Australia, India and Singapore might say yes, and a lot of people in Britain disagree. You can find out for yourself in this interview with John McDonnell. After that, we've got the podcast panel in a child-themed set of challenges, including an anonymous MEP who talks about how the second seat of the European Parliament in Strasbourg tears families apart, Viktor Orban's policy of exempting women with four children from tax, and then the mess at the Irish Children's Hospital. All that and more after the interview with John McDonnell. We're going to have to talk about Brexit and get that out of the way first. Keir Starmer was on the radio this morning saying the only credible options left are Labour's plan really for a softer Brexit or for a second referendum. Is he right to say that? Are those the two now? We're still, we're still in the hope of a general election, but it's unlikely. But yeah, I think they are. We've now we've put our proposals up. The proposal around permanent customs union, close relationship single market, protection of the regulations on employment, environment and consumer rights. We think that could fly within Parliament eventually. We're going to put down an amendment this week. I think Keir's already tabled it for tomorrow. That we're trying to make sure that the government comes with its meaningful vote by the end of the month, 26th or 27th of Feb. I think that we're in this situation now where I'll say, I'll say this without any, um, as objective as I can, I think the Prime Minister's floundering, and I think what's happening now is Parliament is going to take it off her hands and we're going to hard negotiations within Parliament itself. I think the main elements of what we're proposing, I think we could get a majority around it. I think there's an overwhelming majority against no deal is whether or not we can get an agreed deal in time. But how would that work? You know she can't back it. If she backs your plan, no. she will split her party yeah. in two, and you know that, and she knows that, and yeah. everyone knows that. Yeah. So how could that happen? How does so that happen? I think, I, I genuinely think now we're on to hard-nosed negotiations with, between with pockets of support in all the different political parties. And is that now happening? Have you got There's teams? conversations going on all the time. But don't underestimate the strength of feeling that there is to prevent a no deal. There really is across party. So therefore, and it's the thing that Hilary Benn said, I keep quoting, when we started out on his, when he was chair of the Brexit Select Committee in his first report and the other reports, he said all the way along, this is going to wind up in a compromise somehow. And not everyone's going to get everything. So we've got to get into that compromise environment. And I think we're near that. There's an amendment been put forward for tomorrow's votes by Geraint Davis, one yeah. of your colleagues, um, which basically sets out backing Labour's plan but subject to a second referendum. Yeah, yeah. Do you support that as an approach? Not at the moment. We want to concentrate on seeing if we can get this deal, but we've said all the way along we will keep the potential of another people's vote on, on the table. Yeah. But what point has that trying to get our deal through gone? How do you, you know, at what point does that final switch happen? It depends it on what happens about Yvette Cooper's amendment as well. She's put a new amendment. Mm. We supported Yvette last time round. Um, about the extension of Article 50 if, by a certain time scale if a deal isn't agreed. She's putting a new amendment up, which I think has got considerable support, cross-party support, which is about bringing forward a legislation so there isn't a deal by mid-March. There's going to have to be a consideration, a formal vote on either a no deal 
or extension of Article 50, so we're into that territory. If it did come to a second referendum, though, it's never going to get through Parliament, is it? I mean, there's dozens of your own MPs who, however many lines you put yeah. in the whip, they're not going to back it. I can't predict anything at the moment. You literally can't predict anything. You, you, know, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have predicted the way, the scale of the defeat of Theresa May's proposals. That was historic. So anything could happen at the moment. So I, that's why I think with our proposals, I think you might be surprised at the scale of support there is as we near towards the end of February. You spend a lot of time going around the country. You know the different yep. depths of feeling amongst yep. Labour voters on, on Brexit. Both um, ways. Do, do you have sympathy for those MPs who broke the whip last time? You, you yeah, Jim McMahons, you yeah, Gloria. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I understand that people are people are torn. Understandably torn. You know that they come from constituency. My constituency voted Leave. I campaigned for Remain. I voted Remain. My constituency voted Leave. So people are torn between the pressures that they're getting, and it isn't just the pressures. Their judgment about the issue with regard to their constituents, and their judgment with regard to the their relationship with the party overall, and also for the country's interests. So people are coming at this. Genuinely, there's real, genuine parliamentary democracy taking place at the moment. So that's why, of course, you have an understanding for them. Yeah. And you wouldn't condemn, if in the end Theresa May gets her deal through with the votes of MPs like that, you're not going to condemn them for doing there's, that? I don't think that it's ever going to be that sort of politics around this issue. People are going to understand. We'll have a, you know, we'll put our proposals up and we will whip, and that will be to try and persuade people to vote for it. Of course we will. That We're a political party. We're trying to hold that party together as best we can. But the, the level of debate in the House of Commons at the moment is an understanding of where people are coming from. And that's why I think there's a reasonableness that will arrive at a compromise. You've been one of the people in the Shadow Cabinet who's been keen to make sure this second referendum idea at least stays on the table as the conference motion. There's some in the party who'd like it swept well away, as I'm sure you're aware. Do you meet with the People's Vote campaign? Every, I, I meet with them all. I mean, I've met with every group on the People's Vote campaign. I've met with Alistair Campbell and Tom Baldwin. They've come along and took, took me through the polling that they've done. Uh, and I've kept in communication with them. I've met with the People's Vote M supporters within the Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, I've also met with the uh, Caroline Flints and Gareth Snells and others who've, uh, who are clearly concerned about people's vote overall. I'm just trying to understand which, where they're coming from. And tomorrow I'm meeting with Peter Kyle, who's put forward this other motion with Phil Wilson, which is about whatever deal goes through Parliament you put back to the people. I just want to understand where they're coming from and I want to see whether or not we can broker some form of compromise at the end. Because that's the, that's the solution at the end of the day. That's part of, and actually, although parliamentarians have been condemned, they're not doing their job, etc., I think they are doing their job. I think they're listening to one another. I think they're genuinely trying to look after the interests of their constituents and the country. And, and how bad for those constituents would a no-deal scenario be? I'm convinced. I've been convinced by the analysis from the Bank of England and the Treasury, and I've been meeting with the, I mean, the CBI, Institute Directors, Federation of Small Businesses, you name them. I was up in Stoke um, last weekend, uh, weekend before last. I met with the ceramics industry representatives. They're stockpiling already, and they're really worried about what, what's going to happen if we have a cliff edge. So I'm really anxious about the consequences for the economy jobs, of course. And isn't the truth that in the end, no deal isn't possible? Because even if you can't find a mechanism for Parliament to stop it, if we're really headed that way with a week to go, you can always just vote for Theresa May's deal, which is a better option. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. There is a, you saw what happened in Parliament last time. It wasn't just us. It was a crushing defeat. You know, the, the largest uh, defeat on a motion, I think, in parliamentary history. So that's not going to happen. If she comes on to some of the debate around the customer, because we're meeting her, you know, Jeremy's going to seeing her again. We can have a debate around the um, customs union, but I think we've got a fairly 
certain view about what will get support when Parliament You're starts. actually, the two sides are pretty close. You look at it and actually what the two of you are arguing over is relatively small differences now. If you could convince her on that, that'd be really helpful. <laughs> okay. I don't think she'll ever say that. Um, the huge amount of pressure on Luciana Berger at the moment, as you know, do you, do you condemn what's happened in Liverpool? Well, what happened was is that uh, people put forward motions of no confidence on the basis of their judgment about their relationship with the MP, and we urged them to pull back from that because Luciana's eight months pregnant. And they have, they've pulled it back, which is fine. And if there are any differences of view with your local constituency MP, they're usually resolvable. It doesn't take much to keep people happy in your constituency. And I think where there is any breakdowns like that, it doesn't take much to get back on course either. But there's a whole undercurrent in that particular case with the anti-Semitism yeah. around the Scripti yeah. Party. As you know, yeah. there was a big bust up at Shadow Cabinet about it this week, and I'm sure you were there, and I'm sure you don't want to talk about it. Oh, it's, it's, we all know it's Shadow Cabinet is confidential, but I can tell you this. It was a good dis debate, mm -hmm. because basically at Shadow Cabinet, we said we've got to get... Uh, a let's have a real debate now and a proper discussion about what the real situation is. Are we getting on top of this or not? What more resources are needed? What more do we need to do? And we came out of that saying, actually, we've agreed a, a route and the Shadow Cabinet now will have a regular report back and we'll go back to the Parliamentary Labour Party and keep them informed. The complaint constantly from a lot of your MPs and indeed lots of Labour members is that you haven't been hard enough, you haven't, not you particularly, but mm. the, the leadership hasn't been tough enough on this and stamped it out on the field. Do you accept that I get I, I get criticised the other way because I, you know, I, if you remember, I, I was really, I was... I don't really mean you, John, okay. I just mean, you know, the leadership. Well, I, think, I think the process has been too slow and some of the decision-making hasn't been tough enough. I want to be, someone described me as ruthless about it, Well, I want to be ruthless about it. If anyone is anti-Semitic or performs in an anti-Semitic way, well, I want them out of the party as rapidly as possible. But what Jenny Formia has done as a new general secretary, I think she's brilliant, she's done exactly as asked of her. She's staffed up, that's the first thing, so we've got adequate staff. She's brought in a QC to give us proper legal advice, because the worst thing you want to do is take action and leave, lose in the courts. And she's processing the cases as rapidly as she can. And what we've said, if you need more resources to speed this up, you can have them, let's get on with it. But also, one of the issues that were raised at the Parliamentary Labour Party and by myself, is actually the penalties need to be pretty, as I said, pretty ruthless. If someone's anti-Semitic, we don't want them in the party. And the issue there is, in addition to cleaning up the act within the party itself, outside in the external world, we're having Jewish cemeteries daubed. We're having protection to have to be put on Jewish schools. I don't want to live in a society like that. We've got to, we've got to have ensure we've got the right legislation in place with the right penalties, the right resourcing for that in wider society, not just within our party. Um, you were very clear on the radio last week that these aren't just smears against no, Jeremy, that this I've, is a real... Because I've seen the evidence. Um, why do you think then that this issue has raised its head so prominently since... Jeremy came to leadership because it wasn't it wasn't something that was talked about before. Well, that's and now interesting it's a because well, it's interesting. Why is that? The first cases that uh, were identified were before Jeremy's time. The incidences that they were pointed were before Jeremy's time. So what what Jeremy then says, well, we've got to sort those out, and we were completely open and transparent about it. And what's happened is, particularly because of the growth of social media, you've found that actually social media is used much more, and actually is a record of what happens. So we've exposed them, we've been completely open and transparent, and actually, we've been saying to the Tory party, actually, you know, you might be critical of us, but you need to look at yourselves as well, because Baroness Vasi has said about Islamophobia, and there's other issues there. So I think, I'm, I'm pleased we've been this open. But there's an element, isn't there, amongst some small part of the left where they take a 
and it, this issue and, and it, it's and left it's and right it's like the way across the piece mm -hmm. it's left and right and we have to deal with it wherever it is it's interesting because one of the things that Jenny Formby was asked is about the numbers and all this sort of thing and then when she did her report because uh, Margaret Hodge raised it uh, she said I had 200 examples and it looks as though it wasn't it was wasn't 200 individuals about over a hundred and there's only about I think there's about 20 of those are actually party members and uh, so you you can see there's a scale of it out there and if it's anything near our party, we've got to absolutely be ruthless in rooting it out. What I'm as worried about is what's happening externally as well. And it is anti-Semitism, but there's other forms of racism as well that I'm worried about. Islamophobia is on the rise again. Uh, I have a large Sikh, Sikh population in my constituency. There's been real issues about what's happening to Sikhs too. Do you think this particular issue is used, although it's there, is used as a stick to beat you with? No, I don't. I don't. I don't care if it is. I don't think it is. If it is, I don't care. The issue for us is whatever other people are commenting on. It doesn't matter. We've got to sort it out ourselves. And the point is, is if you find one example, you've just got to deal with it. You know, by saying it's a stick used by others or it's a smear campaign, that's an excuse. Let me read you a tweet from uh, Neil Coyle, one of your MPs. Message to Jeremy Corbyn, members leaving in their thousands over Brexit, councillors are quitting, MPs will leave, anti-Semitism continues in your name, only you can change this. And that's what he's doing, that's what he's doing. He's building the resources within the party where we can tackle it. I'm hoping that will be a model for other political parties as we go through. The but next stage on is not just dealing with the cases that we've got ruthlessly, as far as I'm concerned, but also we're introducing an education programme about anti-Semitism, but also wider issues about racism as well. So we become the anti-racist force. But that so many of your MPs are still so unhappy. We saw some of That's your Jewish MPs writing this week. It's understandable. They're, they're, getting, they're bearing the brunt mm -hmm. of some of this. Luciana has borne, borne the brunt of some of the most appalling stuff. But also, look at what Diane Abbott's gone through as well, the racism that she's had to endure. Now, if we find any elements, wherever it's coming from, it's within our party, we sort it. Outside of that, this is why I'm going on, there's a wider community debate here as well, and we need a more open debate about what's happening within our society. Um, I'm going to finish with some quick-fire questions, one-word answers. Who's your favourite Tory? <laughs> Next. <laughs> uh, Winston Churchill, hero or villain? Tony Pandy, villain. Favourite Labour Party leader apart from the current one? Claire Matley. Beer or wine? Beer. Guinness. Have you ever taken an Uber? I'm sure I must have somewhere along the line. Uh, and who's going to win the league, John? Do you know we're tempting fate here, kid, aren't we? <laughs> okay. So funny, I tweeted today. Um, I was with Jeremy and I tweeted out because Gordon Banks died. And when I was a kid, my brother took me to the first four matches in the World Cup. And Jeremy said, are you tweeting? I said, I'm tweeting out uh, Gordon Banks RIP. I said, oh, that's, that's nice of you. I said, it is nice of me because I think Tommy Lawrence should have been there. <laughs> Tommy Lawrence was the <laughs> Liverpool goalkeeper at My that dad time. would definitely agree with you. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Dad. Ladies and gentlemen, John McDonald, thank you. You were listening to John McDonnell. Next up, the podcast panel.
And now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust. As usual, Alva Finn. Welcome, Alva. Hi, good morning. And our very special guest this week, our new Paris correspondent, Reem Momtaz. Yeah, that's great. Well done, Ryan. That is possibly the coolest name in the world. I'm Lebanese. It's an Arabic name. Very, very common, actually. Reem is the name of an Arabic kind of gazelle that has very long horns. And Momtaz, my last name, actually is the word excellent in Arabic. There you go. I, I was just named after some random B-list movie star. Like I, don't, I don't have anything cool like that. But what we do have is a cool set of topics to yes. discuss on the panel this week. So we're going to dive right back into one of our old favourites, the Dear Politico segment. Okay, so here's the letter from our MEP correspondent. Dear Politico, I'm an MEP and a mother, and it's time for me to tell you the problems of MEPs being forced to travel to Strasbourg every month. It ruins families. No one who works here for more than five years can keep their family together, whether divorce, affairs, or children who no longer talk to us. Some MEPs bring full-time nannies in secret, and even with our good salaries, that only works if you have extra finances, because of the sky-high Strasbourg hotel and flight costs. We already maintain a second home in Brussels and constantly travel in order to do our jobs. I'm afraid to speak publicly because of the fear that people will attack me and say, you knew what you signed up for. I could be deselected in favour of someone who has no complications in their life or no hesitation to put their family second and just enjoy the chance to drink and party that Strasbourg offers. Do we want a family-friendly parliament or one that tears families apart? Anonymous. Who wants to dive in first? I remember when one of our first ever Dear Politicos was a MEP's assistant who was forced to babysit his MEP's children. I think, yeah, this is really kind of doing a loop back around. I think having two seats is, is a waste of money. It's silly. I know that you've said that sometimes it makes them hunker down and focus a little bit more. But this is another way to think of it, particularly if you're a woman. I think lots of people, a lot of men, wouldn't mind being away from their children like this. Oh, I but think they love it. I mean, they literally do go out and party. We know some of them travel across the border to find other company. There's a little town just across the border from Strasbourg that that facilitates these transactions. But I understand that this is a woman. Yes. uh, And it is true. Do you want to leave your children with strangers in Strasbourg? Do you force your assistance? Yeah. And if you if you have to have, you know, full time care when you're in Strasbourg is is a lot. However, I don't really feel sorry for MEPs. They get way too much money, in my opinion. But it is another way of looking at the second seat, I think. So your point is they could manage those costs like the nanny um but it would be much more reasonable to have to only do that in one location like brussels yeah i think so reem what about you to start with having to manage that cost a female mep is going to have to do that more than a male mep so isn't that first of all the first kind of discrimination against female meps i think that's a very important thing that people have to kind of think about the thing that struck me the most when i read that letter is that she felt she needed to be anonymous. And I thought, if an MEP who is elected to represent people, 50% of whom are women, usually, on average, if she doesn't feel empowered enough to bring this up because she's an MEP and she's having this issue, but non-MEP normal civilian women also have these issues, then what kind of societies do we live in to start with? Yeah, how can we even legislate for these issues if the legislators don't even feel able to talk about the situation they're in? And, and she rightly notes in her letter that MEPs are paid three to four times the average salary, so it is a good income that they have. 
Uh, and if they're struggling with it, then it tells you a lot about what all parents are struggling with. Yeah, and I think it's the pressure that you're put under by having to go away all the time. And it's not its not like you're just going away for business trips once every two weeks or something. You really have to go for the full week, right? Yeah, and you have three homes then. You have Brussels, Strasbourg, where you live. Plus, we talk about all these study trips, and often there can be stories about you know, that this is basically a holiday for MEPs and a waste of money. But they actually do have to do some serious work travel sometimes too. So these are, you know, the mega frequent flyers of the world. It must be very unsettling. Yeah, and she spoke about people being divorced, you know, that the real price of having the second seat on families. And I think that's a good point. And, and this is actually an area where the EU has competence, you know, can mm-hmm. legislate around maternal, paternal leave, caring responsibilities, that kind of thing. Or what if they just stopped work at 7pm each night? You know, is it that they shove so much work into Strasbourg because they hate going there? So they maximise the hours in order to minimise the number of trips. But that and therefore mean, that creates the imbalance. But that would mean spending more time in Strasbourg. So more time away from the children or having to get your children with you to another city where you're staying in a hotel or a place. So it's it, they have to find a balance. The thing that I don't get is if they do have a crash there or, you know, daycare. And they do. Then they, do. they should just extend the hours, staff it until the sessions are lifted. I mean, mm. that seems to be... That's one thing we should admit. We don't know when that crash actually closes. Right. So apologies that we didn't go and figure that out before we had this discussion. Is there any single piece of advice you would give this MEP about how to handle their situation. I think they should speak up. Yeah, go public. Go public with it, explain it, you know. There we go, that's the journalist-friendly answer to this problem. It's true that, you know, people don't think about these things, particularly men, until you actually speak about it. But, you know, it also brings up this hidden cost related to maternity that women have had to bear, mostly on their own, for the longest time. And we we now talk about, oh, there's more gender equality, there's more pay equality, but there's still this hidden cost related to childbearing. Every time an MEP ends up breastfeeding somewhere, you hear about it for days as if it's the most unusual mm-hmm. thing in the world, even though it's And they're the ones who get there. Imagine yeah. all the people who self-censor and exactly. say, you know, I would be interested to do that. But if this is the sort of thing I have to go through, it's not a price I'm willing to pay or not a price I'm willing to pay on behalf of my children in advance. And so so they never end up in the parliament. Exactly. And then the parliament loses in diversity when we need these voices more in the legislative seats. Well, Viktor Orban has a solution for people facing maternity questions and countries facing population and immigration challenges. He has a new policy which is aimed at reducing the country's declining birth rate, that's Hungary, and reducing immigration because, let's not forget, he's the creator of the original immigration border fence in Europe. And he would like to ensure that any woman that gives birth to four children does not have to pay tax anymore which is maybe working on the assumption that someone who has four children is going straight back into the labor market. And I think that is a big assumption. And there's also going to be preferential loans, for example, to anyone who decides to get married before they turn 40. Talk about demagoguery, really. He wants to supplement the shortage in the labor market by asking people to have more children. These children won't get to the labor market for another 20 years. What does he do with the gap until then? He kind of needs some immigrants, doesn't he? Yeah, he kind of needs some immigrants in the meantime. And, I mean, yes, obviously it's his shtick to vilify the migrants. It's worked well for him so far. But statistics say otherwise. In August, 
there was sort of the first kind of statistics that came out after the wave of migrants that went to Germany that showed that they were getting integrated into the job market well. They weren't taking away jobs from Germans. They were actually taking jobs that needed to be filled where you know there weren't enough Germans to fill them. Mm-hmm. And it was showing that that integration was working well, if a bit slowly. Now, what about the idea that Viktor Orban will pull out? I'm sure he will, if he hasn't already. He'll say things like, but France has a tax credit when people have the third child, I think. You know, he loves to say, oh, I've just borrowed and increased a policy that others have used somewhere else. That's what he does with the media law. Sure, but context is important. So yes, France does have that tax break. It doesn't mean that they don't ever pay taxes anymore, which is, you know, he's taken it to another level. Mm -hmm. And also that family policy, family planning policy in France is not related to xenophobic anti-migrant Policies. So it's just about beating Germany, isn't it? But uh, all, I mean, <laughs> most, most countries have a child allowance, and yeah. it's usually to help mothers. This is a bit novel. I think not paying any tax, I mean, that, that would be huge. You can say that it's cobbled together from other things, but this is one of the biggest tax breaks I've ever heard of. It will still motivate, I think, women to go back into the labour force if they don't have to pay tax. But are the other things, just like we were talking about before, this is like a kind of full circle conversation, will there be what women need to make sure that their children are being looked after while they're at work? The logistical support that they need beyond Um, money. Yeah, because money isn't everything. What about like early childcare I, I don't know how early they're going in Hungary, but I, I can imagine it's it's a little bit later than the rest of Europe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see that. Well, another topic that uh, brings us to the question of is money everything is the one that you wanted to raise, Alva, which is the funding of a national children's hospital in Ireland. A little bit of context before you explain that particular problem. Ireland is one of the richest countries in Europe, and it's also in the process of getting 14 billion euros in back taxes from Apple. So... It doesn't strike me as a country without money to address challenges in healthcare, but tell us a little bit about the issue you're bringing to the panel. So there's a plan to build a national children's hospital, and actually the costs are going out of control, much more than anybody had ever thought. But the most recent piece to this this story, which is, is really kind of imperiling the Minister for Health, is that Ronald McDonald, a charity set up by McDonald's, offered to build some houses so that... They're kind of, yeah, accommodation. So when their children are staying in the hospital, they can stay nearby. And they've been denied the naming rights. So it would have been called Ronald McDonald, whatever housing for mm-hmm. children or families. And the reasoning was because Ireland has a huge childhood obesity rate. To me, I, I work in health and I don't think it's a great idea for a children's hospital to be named after McDonald's, given the problems that it caused. We know that these big food industry conglomerates like McDonald's have caused a a childhood obesity epidemic across the Western world. Is it a good idea for them to be able to name something near a hospital after themselves? Mm -hmm. I would take it one step back before we get further into that particular issue, which is how does the healthcare system in Ireland work? Because my understanding is that most people do not have access to something called a medical card, which is what the rest of us might know as a Medicare card or something like that. And that strikes me as very surprising given how rich Ireland is. And also you have this massive involvement of the Catholic Church for fairly predictable reasons in Ireland's history. But it almost seems to me like this issue is sort of the least of Ireland's healthcare problems. Like how does a country like Ireland get into such a mess? 
Yeah, I think it's a historic thing. It's true that the Catholic Church has had a big role in in most of our service provision, but most people also have private health care. So we do have a public health care system, but a lot of it is subsidised or people kind of, I don't know, go around the public health care system because it's so shoddy. People have to wait often for days in A&E to get a bed. So there is a real need for us to build things like a new a children's hospital. So this is where I, I wonder if you're a parent and you have a very sick child and you're super stressed out about your child hopefully making it, if your child has a life-threatening, a, a life-threatening condition, would you rather have this accommodation, even if it's under the name McDonald's, with all the obesity issues that it brings about or not, Or would you rather not have that housing? I mean, I think if I were a parent of a sick child, I would take whatever housing was there because what I'm focused on is my child's, you know, getting better. And if I was McDonald's, I would just do this privately. I mean, I only know the Australian example, mm -hmm. but I think they kind of have relationships with the hospitals, but they're not like formally integrated into the hospital system somehow. They just bought houses or apartment blocks near the hospital and then they run this as a private thing and you kind of can get the brochure when you go to your appointment in the hospital but it's kind of all run separately. Apparently it's going to be run by the Ronald McDonald charity and then some of the cost is going to be split by the HSE which is our um, health service but I think what if your child was suffering from obesity would you still be very happy to leave? yeah stay stay in it i don't know i think yeah but here i mean with that question mcdonald's is a lot better than it used to be though well first but also if your child is, is suffering from obesity i think it's a bit easy to just blame mcdonald's for their obesity i mean at some point you also have some people have genetic predispositions to being obese that's one thing but then there's also i guess the parental responsibility to provide better nutrition to your child and i understand that if you're not wealthy, it's cost prohibitive to eat well. I completely get that. But, you know, I, I also think that it's just a, an easy shortcut to... I get your point. It's an optics thing. Yeah. I mean, the government doesn't ban McDonald's from existing. So why should they ban them from donating to a healthcare? Which would be service? helpful to people. Yeah. I mean, they haven't banned them from doing it. And that, I think that was the thing that they accepted. Yes, this is a it's a goodwill thing from Ronald McDonald charity. But should it have the name of McDonald's? I don't know. I think it's a bit of a commodification of healthcare. Yeah, I mean, my principle would be, like, Ireland can pay for it itself. The Irish government has the money to do this. It doesn't need money from McDonald's. Yeah, unfortunately, healthcare is one of the places that we often cook corners. And I think the whole thing is that this is happening in a story where now the costs of this children's hospital are out of control. And apparently not giving them the naming rights is going to cost them 10 million. So everybody always well, needs more money for health. McDonald's, come on in and become the naming rights sponsor of EU Confidential. <laughs> we are looking for a new podcast studio and we're very happy to take the money. How about that? Is that a good way to wrap up this episode? <laughs> It's <laughs> your podcast, right? They want to all laugh. They all want to laugh. This room is laughing, people, and they're suppressing their laughter. So I am going to bank that laughter that I'm hearing silently in the room. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Podcasting is a team effort, so I want to thank Christina Gonzalez, Wei Dong Lin, and Andrew Gray. I want to thank you, Reem, and you, Alva, for joining the panel, and we're going to see you back here again. We're not going to see you, but you're going to hear us next week on EU Confidential. Mm -hmm.